This is episode 13 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast, continuing the sessions from the 2019 Annual Enrichment Conference. Due to technical difficulties, we were not able to record session 3 on Tuesday night. This is session 4 with Dave Whitaker, President of CB America, titled, What Spiritual Disciplines Does My Church Need to Practice to Grow Our Relational Capacity? appreciated the uh, opportunity to connect with uh, many of you and um, just just to share a little bit about life and ministry and what God is doing in your lives and in your communities and it's just been an incredible privilege to be here be a part of it um, I really would like to know when Mark where is Mark come on Mark I really want to know when you actually enter a golf course. I, I would just like to know that that actually happens. So, Janelle, can you uh, let us know that? Because I don't believe you. But I was impressed you used a golf analogy. So, um, yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, someday we'll show you what a golf club looks like. But <laughs> yeah, well, did you get par or? I I remember it was it was pretty close one at I think 15 years ago when we um, I had been pastoring in in um, Arizona and had um, just really gotten to a point of discouragement and burnout and really challenged and I came to a next gen uh, gathering much like this and uh, we were just we were just grabbing for some kind of help somebody that would speak into our heart into our life and God not only used the messages of that gathering um, but uh, God used the interaction that we've had with uh, various pastors and leaders that uh, just brought us the encouragement we needed at that moment. And I've got to think there are probably some of us here today that um, this may be you um, being here just grabbing for something. And uh, I just want to encourage us to be uh, aware, sensitive, and considerate of the fact that uh, there's other leaders and people here, other wives, uh, other women leaders, other uh, pastors that are just really grabbing for some kind of hope. And um, we talk about community, but community really only happens when we engage and get involved in each other's life. I, I think one of the challenges of associations and denominations is it can kind of be like your family showing up to a sports day and none of you know what game you're playing, what sport you're playing. Is it hockey? Is it football? Is it golf? Is it baseball? Uh, what is it? Or it's sort of like uh, going out for recess. You remember this as a kid, you would go out for recess and you would spend the entire recess arguing about what game you're going to play 
and finally, by the time you found out what game you all decided you were going to play, recess was over and you had to go in. And I want to challenge us that recess is almost over. We better know what game we're playing. We better know what it is that we're doing. If we're really going to do it again, if we're really going to be writing our own book of Acts, we better know our game and what we're doing. I, I want to just walk through, uh, highlight some key themes that I see on the surface through Acts that I challenge and encourage you to get engaged with and to study for yourself. Six key themes that I find in Acts, um, just as a review for us today. The first one is movement started out with that initial 120, then there were 3,000, then there were 5,000, then it began to multiply and it was more and more. There was this movement from Jerusalem to Cyprus to Antioch and Barnabas and Saul were set apart for that next surge of advance. Advancement and movement has always been a part of the people of God. The second feature of the book of Acts is the prominence of the local church. As the apostles proclaimed the gospel and made disciples and were guided by the Holy Spirit, there became these local ecclesias. Acts is the story of the gospel creating believers who form these ecclesias and elders who are appointed and raised and established and churches that are proclaiming the gospel and then going out from there, acting as the body of Christ, the family of God, the mainstay of the truth planting and strengthening churches and establishing new leaders. Thirdly, the, the centrality of the message of the gospel you find all throughout the book of Acts. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the resulting benefits that accrue to those who believed him. The gospel is that meta-narrative that goes throughout the Bible from creation to fall to redemption to restoration. It's, it's Jesus that holds the narrative together. And throughout all 28 chapters of Acts, we have changing lives, creating new and strengthening churches and raising leaders and turning cities and communities and world upside down. The fourth standout feature of the book of Acts is the ongoing commitment to planting churches. There were teams that would plant churches, and at the same time, the New Testament focused mostly on Paul's church planting efforts. He personally planted churches on his early missionary journeys. And then he was provoking other churches and other leaders to go out and to do the same. The fifth standout is the commitment, the ongoing commitment to strengthen the church. The same apostles who planted churches in Iconium and Derby and Lystra returned twice to strengthen them. And then they sent delegates and they sent epistles out to do the same. Paul urged the church in Rome to engage with church planting in regions beyond them. And he did so with 16 strengthening chapters. As much as he longed to preach Christ where he had not been preached, Paul also longed for Christ to be formed deeply in the hearts and lives of the people. The sixth standout feature of Acts is that they partner together. We often miss the idea of partnership throughout the New Testament, and yet it's, it filled everything. It's between, it's underlying all of it. This koinonia, this partnership, describe church leaders as they're working together, churches working together. God's plan was partnership and koinonia, not isolation. 
And like Paul, we want churches to be mature and capable, standing on their own two feet, and yet not isolated or independent. And the body metaphor is not just for members of a local church, but for the local church themselves, because we can do more together than any of us ever could apart. So all six of those key features in Acts really lay out our CB mission, vision, and values. Our, our, our mission of advancing the gospel through missional networks, partnering together as we plant and strengthen churches and raise up leaders so that as our vision is the gospel-centered congregations, transforming every community with the gospel of Jesus. The challenge is working that out. And the challenge is how, how does partnership look? What does partnership look like? How does it work out? And what I want to do here, because I, as I look at Acts, I see really four key pillars, four main pillars in, in the book of Acts that describe partnership. And I think they may be helpful for us in understanding why our partnership is important and maybe to describe some of the challenges that we've had in partnership. Let me give you four key pillars of partnership. The first is doctrine and values. The content of the epistles testify to how much Paul wanted his churches to believe in correct doctrine, to be pillars of the truth. There are some networks and some associations and denominations that don't really care that much about doctrine. But Paul was convinced that we needed to believe right. We had needed to have right doctrine. And we also needed to live out that doctrine. We needed to have right values. And one of the things that is a pillar to our association, our partnership together, is our doctrine. We can never lose that. Secondly is our shared mission. In addition to partnering around the truth, Pauline partnerships were missionally productive. Together they planted churches. Together they strengthened churches. Together they pooled their finances for worthy causes. And we exist to advance the gospel through networks of churches partnering together in planting and strengthening churches and raising up leaders. Thirdly is genuine relationships. A third pillar is that we have that brotherly connection with one another. That we are, you see in Paul, he talks about his children in the faith. He encouraged church leaders to lead their churches as a family. You find him often giving personal greetings. He displayed concern for a church leader's health physically. And he would end his letters oftentimes with personal greetings and messages to people in the church that he had, had gotten to know over their ministry involvement. With all the pressures of our busy world and of his expanding movement, we need to be clear that the relational aspect of church partnership is foundational. We can never opt for just being an organization. We need, to, we need that relationship to bring genuine affection, respect, honesty, trust, and a little bit of fun. The fourth pillar is recognized leadership. We've seen it here today. Leadership is a gift from God. And leadership is necessary to move any group forward, including a movement of churches. And we need to be sure that the leaders of our movement and within our movement are recognized on the basis of their character as well as their giftedness. 
Leaders play an important role in helping us partner together. We need biblically principled leaders, gifted by God, recognized by the church, anointed to accomplish the positions God has given to them. So the question I have to ask myself as I'm moving into this role is how will CBA not only move out of the woes that are sometimes associated with networks and denominations, but make sure that we're moving into vitality and to health. And as I look at these four pillars, I see that they were important to the early church. And I also look at these four pillars and ask the question, if you're not feeling connected sufficiently, it's probably one of these four pillars that is an obstacle for you. They also become a helpful grid to understand all of the different partnerships we have. Single-issue partnerships such as Gospel Coalition or Together for the Gospel or Nine Marks that are, are specifically there to partner around one aspect or maybe a couple aspects of these four pillars. Maybe your local minister's fraternal in your town is usually based around relationship or maybe doing some things together. But I think if we're going to be effective, we need all four of those pillars. And we need to ask our the question, am I sharing similar doctrine and values with Northwest CBA? Am I meaningfully involved in the mission with Northwest CBA? Do we enjoy genuine relationship with the churches and leaders in the Northwest? Do we recognize the gifting of God on those who lead? And if one of those answers for you is no, that's why this partnership may feel uncomfortable. If two or three of those answers are no, then this partnership will be unsustainable for you. We need all four. And I believe it's preferable for the local church to be involved in that holistic partnership. And I think it's important for what CB is doing together to provide those four pillars so that we can partner together. Not negating other partnerships, not negating other networks that are accomplishing things. But I think these four pillars are essential for the health of Northwest and for all of CBA. What I want to do in the remainder of my five minutes that I've been given is take a few more than that. Is, is that okay, Jerry? Okay. Because um, I, I want to I come back to something that we talked about last night about what I think is probably the biggest hurdle for us personally in partnering and working together. I, I've never had a person or never have had a leader come up to me and say, I'm struggling with envy. But we struggle with envy. I want to take a couple of minutes and walk through the life of David, Saul, and Jonathan. And I want to talk about envy and how it is an obstruction to our working together. And it's real for all of us. What is envy? Well, first of all, it's comparison. Look at verse, I, I'm, I'm reading in 1 Samuel, and Paul, Saul's, it says, Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And they said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. 
what more can be can he have but the kingdom look look at that passage you have this immediate comparison with the other person and what they have and what you think you have or don't have and with envy we just can't appreciate what we have we can't appreciate what that other person has secondly is the issue of desire Verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. He had a jealous eye and a jealous look. So first you have comparison, and secondly, uh, you have them um, desiring something in their life. The third thing is resentment. You resent their life. You, You begrudge them what they have. You feel like they don't deserve it, but you do. Envy is weeping when other people rejoice and rejoicing when other people weep. It's loving to hear stories of how people who have money or wealth or power fall down. Not just sorry that they're happy, but also happy when they're sorry. But what does envy do to us? It robs us. It robs us of our joy. Internally, it makes you feel less happy with what you already have. You're, you're perfectly happy with your house until you see your co-worker's house. You're perfectly happy with your church until you see your co-worker or your friends or your pastor friend's church. Maybe a fellow minister, you've, you've gone to the same school. You know they're not as talented as you. In other words, you thought you were doing pretty well, and then you saw them. You heard about their attendance, their facility, their opportunities. Now you can't enjoy yours. And you miss out on the opportunity to rejoice with them and to build into that relationship. It robs you of that relationship. You know, envy is considered one of the seven deadly sins. Pride, gluttony, lust, anger, greed, sloth, and envy. But envy is different because if you're slothful, you're enjoying it. If you're greedy, you're enjoying it. If you're prideful, you're enjoying it. It just has consequences later. But when you're envious, you're not enjoying anything. Proverbs says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Secondly, it grows, like all sin. Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. You know, that phrase, harmful spirit, is pretty terrifying. It's about a terrifying spirit. You you see the same phrase used in Judge 9, where the people of the town are getting really angry with their leader, and then the Bible says, and God sent a harmful spirit to them. And they really got angry. So Paul is, or Saul is envying and getting afraid, and then God sent a harmful spirit, and he got really afraid. What's going on? Well, I think God, according to Romans, is the most equitable, fair-minded judge possible. And here's how he judges sin. He gives us more of what we choose. There's no greater punishment for bitterness than more bitterness. There's no greater punishment for envy than more envy. And when you and I choose a sinful path, and God lets us go in it, it's the fairest kind of judgment. It's the worst kind of judgment. Every time we're selfish instead of serving, every time we pay back instead of forgiving, every time we're stingy rather than generous, every time we tell a half-truth instead of a whole truth, 
Every time we worry instead of trusting God, sin doesn't just go away. It becomes a force in my life. It becomes a shadow presence in my life. It destroys my will. And in the beginning, you do anger, you do envy, but the end, anger does you and envy does you. That's why Saul was trying to kill David. Lastly, envy hides. There's a frightening place in Genesis 4 where God is encountering Cain and confronting him. And he counsels him and he says in Genesis 4, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Envy is crouching at your door. It's a predatory animal who's crouching and hiding and ready to pounce at a moment's notice. At the moment that pastor comes to you and says, I'm going to bring a new church into your community, it's there pouncing. So how do we escape envy? I think we can learn from Jonathan. And there's some incredible things in the life of Jonathan. Look what it says here in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What's interesting is both David or both Saul and Jonathan knew that God was with David. They both knew that God had anointed him to be king. But in a stunning act, Jonathan gives to David two things, his robe and his armor, especially his sword. The robe would have been his royal robe. It was basically the symbol of the fact that he was to be king. He's basically taking the crown off of his head and he's handing it to David. But not only that, he's giving him his armor and his sword. When you take out your sword and you hand it to your enemy, you're basically saying, command me. Kill me if you wish. I'll let you be king. But David or Jonathan was not just saying simply, I'll let you be king. He was saying, I will serve you. He was saying, I will make myself vulnerable to you. It's stunning because in that culture, the heir of the throne would have been the one taking the sword and taking it and piercing David. What do we learn from Jonathan? Well, first of all, Jonathan shows us the true nature of love. That's the most obvious thing in the text. It tells us about Jonathan's triumph over en envy. It says he loved him. Twice it says he loved him. A lot of our cultural ideas of love have more to do with a hunger for enhancement rather than love. I mean, let's be honest. We see someone with beauty. We see someone that has connections. We see someone who's considered important. I want that person to be my friend. I'm attracted to them. Why? Because I want their accomplishments to be rub off on me. We say we're attracted, that we have feelings of love. 
But what I really want is your asset to come into me, to enhance me, to make me feel better, to make me be happier, to let your beauty be connected to me. Listen, here's a definition for love that's challenging me. Real love is putting your happiness into someone else's happiness. Real love is saying, I love you so much, I can't be happy unless you have joy. I can't be happy unless you flourish. I can't be happy unless you prosper. That's love. But that's hard. The first thing we see with Jonathan is he's actually loving David. And I have to ask myself, can I love my fellow pastors like that? Can I love other churches like that? Because I can't envy and love at the same time. Real love is putting my happiness into their happiness so that I'm happy when they flourish and I weep when they weep and I rejoice when they rejoice. And you know why it's so hard? Because something has to happen in my heart for that to happen. How am I going to rejoice with that pastor that I'm envious of? Secondly, Jonathan shows us the true nature of Christ's love, the unenviousness of Jesus. Look at Jonathan again. He literally empties himself of his glory. He literally makes himself vulnerable. Does this sound like anyone to you? I mean, Jesus is the true Jonathan in Philippians 2. He takes off his royal robe. He takes out his sword and his armor. And he essentially hands it to us and makes himself killable. Jonathan Edwards said this, look at Jesus. You take the spirit of the gospel in your heart, you will see Jesus did not begrudge us a life spent in labor and suffering or his own precious blood, which he shed for us on the cross, nor will he begrudge us a throne of glory with him in the heavens where we shall live and reign with him forever. He does not begrudge the sacrifice to save you. He does not begrudge that one day you will reign with him. He's put his happiness in our happiness. He's put his joy in the Father's joy and in our joy. Let's be honest. Oftentimes, we hold back other leaders, and oftentimes we don't delegate to other leaders because of envy. When we say we want leaders, what we're actually saying oftentimes is we want followers. And if you want to deal with the seeds of envy in your heart, we need to listen to Jesus saying, Father, I love them, I want their joy, but the only way that we can get that, they don't deserve it. If I take what I don't deserve, then they can receive it. I need to take the punishment of their sins that they deserve. I need to take the punishment that their envy deserves. And he went and he did that. And if you and I see Jesus doing that for us, that because he did that, because we've believed in his sacrifice and his resurrection, what that means for us, what is guaranteed for us, what kind of wealth we have in heaven with him, and what kind of spiritual wealth and soul health that we have, what kind of beauty and prosperity we have in that relationship with him, how can you be envious of anyone else? 
Every time I find my spirit going to envy, it's a trigger to let me know I'm not appreciative. I'm not living in the story of the gospel because he put his happiness in our happiness. Thirdly, Jonathan shows us the freedom of abdication. The only way we can get God's salvation into our life is if we get off the throne. The only way he could get God's salvation into his people was that he got off the throne. The only way God's salvation is going to come to you is when you and I get off the throne of our heart and we take the sword of our life and we hand it to our Savior and we say to him, you command me. Jonathan wasn't worried. He had made the decision to cease ruling his world. My worry, your worry, is basically looking at our world and looking at our history and looking at our kingdoms and thinking we know exactly how things have to go and we're afraid that God isn't going to get it right. You wouldn't be worried, though, unless you're saying, if I was on the throne of the world, then this is how it has to happen. I've got to cease ruling my world. I've got to cease ruling my kingdom. I've got to get off the throne. I've got to do what Jonathan did. Look at what Jesus did. Look at him stripping himself of his glory. Look at him taking off his sword. Look at him doing all of that for you. Why? Because he loves you. He loves us that much. Get the sense of love that comes with abdication. Get the sense of love that comes into our lives. If you and I give ourselves completely to him, he has given himself completely to us. What, who do you think is going to get the better end of that deal? So I invite you to take the test with me. The next time someone else is given an opportunity, the next time you hear good news about a fellow pastor or church, will you murmur or will you celebrate? Not just accept their success, but rejoice in their success. Celebrate with their success. That when someone else is blessed with God, that you are filled with gratitude for what God is doing in his kingdom. Because the only kingdom that matters to us is the kingdom of our God. When we let the gospel inform our souls, we can relax. We can rejoice in the goodness of our God. I do not need to grasp for talent and gifts of others. I do not need to covet my neighbor's spouse, house, family, ministry, or opportunities. I'm not defined by the blessings of others. I am defined by the grace of my God. Therefore, I will refuse to measure myself by a false standard. I will resist the compulsive and relentless urge to compete with everyone, especially those who are called to do the same thing I am called to do. I will put to death malicious dreams about the downfall and failure of others by savoring the sure knowledge that God is lavish in grace, that he's promised to graciously, freely, and abundantly give to me and to them all things in his beloved son. May we rest in that. Father, thank you for the incredible 
privilege that we get to be called sons and daughters of God. And we find our hope and we find our identity in that very basic, simple story. It costs you everything. Lord, help us to quit taking the sword in our own hands. And we walk, Father, in your grace. And we walk in the goodness of your goodness.